Welcome to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their specialty, and we focus on career questions such as what their professional life is like and how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. If you haven't already, we suggest that you first listen to the main Medical Murmurs podcast, featuring the same guest, before you listen to this one. Welcome. I'm talking with Julen Wang. He is a trauma surgeon at Cooper University Hospital in Camden, New Jersey. What's interesting is that, you know, you're in a very practical uh, branch of medicine. You're working with your hands on cases. You know, it's, it's pretty far from the, from, you know, the lab bench. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a big extreme from the lab bench. Um, and in all honesty, throughout medical school and um, my uh, clerkships as a medical student, I never thought I was going to do surgery. I actually had stacked the um, rotation as my last one in my third year of um, my MS3 year of medical school. And um, my whole idea behind why I did that was I was pretty sure I wasn't going to do it. And um, I had thought about maybe doing internal medicine and GI or radiology. And I tried my hand at those things and I realized it wasn't for me. And then when I did surgery within a week or two of doing the rotation, I knew it was, that was what was for me. I wanted to do that. Tell me more about that. Um, I think what really changed my mind is I came to realize that, you know, I think there's two views what you can view medicine as. Um, one is the glorified view of what medicine is, which is helping patients and doing that every day, which I still firmly believe is, is, is a calling. And I don't think people should go into unless they have that thought purely in mind. And the second thing was that really attracted me to surgery was that using your hands to heal people and how, how fast the outcomes could be, mostly for the better, but obviously sometimes for the worse. And um, that really appealed to me. Can you think back to a time when you were doing that rotation and what you saw? Yeah, I mean, I was at uh, St. Barnabas Hospital in Livingston, New Jersey for my rotation. And um, I have to credit a lot of the surgical residents there. They were really into their specialty. They didn't try to dissuade you from doing it. And and they, um, you know, looked like they loved their job. It was a hard job. You could tell that that was conveyed to me as well. But uh, it was something that gave all of them a lot of meaning. And um, working with them really made me see the um, how great surgery really was. Was it the work at the bedside or the work in the OR that grabbed you first? It was the work in the OR. I remember a case very clearly. Um, it was a patient who had a... Um, iatrogenic uh, laceration to the femoral artery post-procedure. And I remember he was hypotensive and bleeding into his retroperitoneum. And um, despite you know conservative management, uh, he just kept losing blood and wasn't getting better. So he's taken emergently to the operating room. I remember watching the vascular surgeon, I believe his name was Dr. Hertz, get in there and get control of this uh, injury, fix the patient, get him resuscitated into the ICU. And he recovered. I got had the privilege of seeing him for the next few days and you know, watched him recover from this ordeal that would have otherwise killed him. And that's what really sold me to the profession. It seems like he literally saved the guy's life. Yeah, I think that's the most appealing part of it. You start to realize the impact you can make in the field. You also realize how difficult it is too, but I don't know. At, at that point, I went from being somebody who, you know, probably in the beginning of my undergrad, didn't really want to be challenged to wanting to embrace the challenge.
You are listening to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. And so you went from medical school uh, and you matched into a general surgical residency? Well, I didn't uh, match directly right away because um, going to foreign medical school, I think one of the major disadvantages is uh, if you wanted to go into a competitive field, say surgery was pretty competitive at the time, um, it was a it was a hard match. So um, I tried to match into a categorical position in surgery, which is basically more of a guaranteed position for five or six years, depending on the program, and in which at the end of that time, you come out as a trained general surgeon. I, I couldn't match into a categorical program. Um, I had very good grades and I had very good um, step scores, but um, you know, I think it's a foreign grad and there's so many US grads competing for the same spot and the system rightly so serves American grads, it just was a hard match. So I was fortunate enough to get a preliminary position at um, the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. So I was there for a year um, doing my preliminary spot. And then at, during that year, besides working, I also reapplied for a general surgical spot. When uh, you were doing your prelim year, you obviously had to do certain things to maximize your chances of getting into a categorical program. And at that point, you were quite set on, on surgery. So what did you do that maximized your chances? Um, I, think, I think the main thing you do is you try to work well with your team, your clinical care team, like your chief residents, your senior residents, your co-residents. Um, I was there all the time. I mean, I just try to absorb and do as much as I possibly could, help out as much as I could, you know, do do the things the best that I could, just to be a good team player and also learn at the same time. So I read a lot in the hospital. I basically lived there. I probably worked like, I mean, over a hundred hours a week, most most of the, my time as a prelim. I mean, you, you know, at that point, um, you're, you're at the cusp, cusp of not getting into a, a surgical program. You know, you can't, keep being a prelim, you can be a PGY-1. I actually, the reason my training took longer was because when I matched, I matched back into a PGY-1 spot and having done a year, I mean, you don't want to repeat a year, but at the same time, you don't want to give up the opportunity either. So I didn't, there weren't any PGY-2 spots that I got into. So I just went back and did my PG1, PGY-1 year again, which is fine. You know, I think you, you can always learn more surgical training. To, I think, um, it's probably, I mean, you try to compress it in, it's probably a little short considering how much you need to learn and do. Um, and it's, it's already long as it is, but I probably could use more time. So that, was, that wasn't bad. I think in the grand scheme of things, it didn't really matter. Um, but I just basically worked all the time. I remember uh, at the end of my um, prelim year, the um, program director there, Dr. Davino, who I owe a lot to for how I am now, um, was like, you know, everyone knows you're a great resident. We just don't have the space to accept anyone into our next year. We tend to take U.S. grads as kind of a program policy, and I understood. And um, But she was like, I'll do everything in my power to help you get into a categorical spot. And she wrote letters for me, called on my behalf to different programs, and looked for open spots and really helped me out. I really owe her a debt of gratitude for all the things she did for my career. Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. Walk me through a typical day for you. 
We have um, different service days, but a typical call day would start out at you know, eight in the morning and uh, we would have our morning report, which is kind of a report uh, we have with all the members of the trauma team, the oncoming call team, the outgoing call team, and anyone who's gonna be in the hospital that day. And we start by discussing any emergencies or situations that are current or like are ongoing so that they can be addressed. Um, there's usually a team broken off to address that. Um, then we usually go over a teaching case, like an interesting case that happened the night before, particularly in trauma for resident education, because our trauma teams come primarily comprised of residents and attending a fellow. And we may or may not have journal club where we discuss a current paper that talks about some topic in uh, critical surgical critical care or trauma. After that, um, depending on whether you're on service or not, if you're in the ICU, you make rounds in the ICU, that usually takes four to five hours to complete, or we'll make rounds on the floor with our nurse practitioners. Or if you're just on call and you're not making rounds at all, um, you just wait for whatever comes. And um, during the day, um, I'll field consults from uh, trauma and the ED, um, and as well as on the floor, if there are any patients who are admitted who end up having a history of trauma, which wasn't known at the time and didn't directly come through us. And um, it goes from there. Generally, we'll have 11 to 20 um, transfers or alerts per 24-hour shift. And that's where we generate our, um, our patient population. Uh, some of the alerts, the alerts tend to be sicker because uh, they met triage criteria in the, either in the field or by our nursing staff down in the trauma admitting area to be intaken into the um, trauma admitting area in which alerts call it and the anesthesia team will come down. A couple of nurses will come down. Um, they're usually TICU trained nurses here. So they're very, very good. Um, our resident trauma team, a fellow and an attending usually will come down to uh, cover the alert. And based on how the alert goes, the patients can either get stabilized, go to the floor, get stabilized, get discharged, go to the operating room if they need a procedure from us or orthopedics or neurosurgery. These, those are primary uh, places that patients go to the operating room for in trauma or um, go to the ICU for further care. They may not need an operation, but they have injuries severe enough that warrant monitoring, like usually traumatic brain injuries or whatever that need to be uh, monitored very closely for like expansion of the hematoma or um, altered mental status. Sometimes we'll get patients who get put in the ICU for airway watch because of like bad chest injuries or, or any injuries that may compromise their ability to breathe. And it goes from there. Sometimes um, on a slow night, we may only have like eight or nine uh, patient encounters. Sometimes on a busy night, it could be upwards of 20 to like 25. I think the most I've had is 28 in one 24 hour period. So it can be really busy or not busy. And you kind of don't know. I mean, you kind of have a general idea, I think on weekends, on warmer days where there are a lot of people in this area because of like going to the beach or people riding their motorcycles around will tend to get more trauma. So it's obviously much busier here in the summer than it is in like the dead of winter. But working in Camden, there can also be um, a lot of interpersonal violence too. So we'll get um, a good proportion of gunshot wounds, assaults, shootings that'll come to us as well because we're the only level one for all of South Jersey. So and this tends to be a, a more violent area. I think it's it's better than it used to be, but 
it's, there's still some areas where it's quite dangerous and there's a lot of uh, interpersonal violence and firearm violence or um, penetrating trauma, which is, we'll, we'll get all those things as well. It's kind of how our day is. So you're in hospital for 24 hours? Yeah, 24 plus, probably three or four hours at the end, just to tie up any loose ends. And how many of those do you do a week? I usually do one. It averages out to be four to five a month. You are listening to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. What are the highs and the lows of, the, of your working life? <laughs> it's funny you ask that question that way because I tell my residents when they ask me how trauma is like or how critical care is like, I'm like, it's the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Right. Um, I always I have this saying, and I, I can't credit it to myself, but um, I've heard components of this in the past, and I kind of put it together. Um, I'm really paid here to um, sign my notes and go to meetings. That's what I'm really paid to do, because I would operate and teach my residents and uh, do clinical care for free. I, I love doing that. That's my favorite part of the job, um, and I still love doing it. Um, the, all the medical documentation we have to do, I, I understand the importance of it, but it's such a drag. You know, if I could go do a case or something instead of sitting in my office and write like a hundred notes, I'd rather do that. Um, that's, so my, the highs I think on call are, um, you know, getting operative trauma. Of course, I don't want anyone to get hurt, but if they're hurt, I'd like to be the one taking care of them. Um, and I'm um, operating on sick general surgery patients, taking care of sick patients, educating my residents and fellows, um, interacting with my nursing staff, our techs. They, they're the true unsung heroes of this system. I, I think they don't get enough credit for all the things that they do to help the patients get better. They, they really do the yeoman's work on that. And I can't say that enough. They're, they're great. And that's part of the reason why I love working here because they're, they're so good at what they do and they're so dedicated to the care of the patient. Um, the lows, I mean, sometimes you get bad cases, you, you operate on you, and you kind of know in your heart that no matter how good of an operation you do, the patients aren't going to recover. And it's not the patient's fault. It's just the set of circumstances that they came with. You know, I think those, I really dislike that. Um, I dislike having to deal with, you know, complications from other services or whatever, but that's a part of uh, doing acute care surgery. So, you know, in, in the way I embrace that is I just try to take care of the patient the best that I can, take care of them the best that I can, and um, you know, try not to think about it that way. And um, the other low is medical documentation. <laughs> 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 and I, again, I know it's important. It's just not the most fun thing I can think of doing. You are listening to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. What do you think is the biggest thing that's changed in trauma care in the last 10 years? I know this is not going to be a very popular sentiment, but, um, you know, academically, trauma care um, has always been, I think, irrevocably linked with the military trauma system. So I think all the biggest changes that we've had in the last 10 years are a result of things that have happened in the war against terror, the Middle East. And um, I can name like 
three or four different things that have really come to the forefront. Number one is the use of tourniquets, which was first, you know, I mean, tourniquets have been around forever. You know, ever since people could tie a piece of fabric with a stick at the end of it, they've had, we've had tourniquets and they've kind of come into fashion, gone out of fashion. Now currently they're back in vogue again, rightly so. Um, that's definitely come from the war on terror with, I think, um, dismounted blast injuries from improvised explosive devices. The number of extremity injuries and stuff that the military sees is probably surpassed a lot of the other wars that we've had. And tourniquets have certainly been a life-saving measure for a lot of the soldiers out on the field and the civilian setting too. I remember as a fellow, we would get one or two people with bad mangled extremities that are bleeding with a tourniquet on. The majority of the patients would come in without one. They would come in with packing or whatever that wouldn't really do anything. But now every single patient, um, for better or for worse, they have a tourniquet on for any extremity bleed. I've even seen one patient had a bleeding varicose vein the other day. There's a tourniquet on. I mean, I don't know if it did anything for him, but but you know, the I think in the civilian setting, it's even more important because um, the patients can get to a trauma center usually pretty quickly in this country. And so they can be evaluated right away. So the rate of limb loss from having a tourniquet inadequately or misapplied is probably low to almost non-existent. Right in the military, it's a little different because sometimes they'll be in the middle of a firefight and they'll have an injury and um, the tourniquet will get applied and they may not be able to get off the battlefield for quite some time. And tourniquets really only can stay on for like six to eight hours. They're properly applied. But fortunately, I think the military has a good medical evacuation system where they can get the patients over to a Ford surgical hospital and they can be evaluated. And, and so their, most of their data shows that tourniquets are um, effective in saving patients with extremity injuries. I think the second major change in trauma care is going away from crystalloid resuscitation to more of a hemostatic resuscitation, basically using blood or and or blood products. And um, that's really a big game changer in um, outcomes for patients in terms of surviving their their um, massive hemorrhage, as well as um, preventing any of the secondary problems with um, over-resuscitation with crystal like bowel edema or like um, or the like from having just too much crystalloid and not a balanced resuscitation. We've really gone away from using crystalloid for the better, I think. Um, I think at first when we were doing this, it seemed like you're using so much blood. It, it seemed almost unconscionable, but then you start seeing patients get closed from their abdomens being open and, and not becoming coagulopathic from having too much crystalloid infusion. And you start to realize how effective it is. We've, we've already we've gone as far as to even give whole blood. We give um, cool whole blood here. And quite a few other institutions around this area have adopted it after we've adopted it. And I'm sure um, there's no full literature out on it yet, but I'm sure that over time we'll see that. It's, I'm sure it's a better way of resuscitating patients because if you think about it logically, which I, I don't understand how we went away from this. If someone's bleeding, they're not bleeding crystal, they're bleeding blood and they're bleeding the, f the full component. So how could that not be better? I guess well, research will tell that in the future. Those are, I think, the two major changes in trauma in the last 10 years, in my mind. Who's suited to trauma as a specialty? Yeah. That's a, that's a tough question. Um, I think like most fields of medicine, it's definitely a calling. I don't think you should do it if you don't have it in your heart to do it. I think, um, you know, someone who's 
willing to be a staunch advocate for their patients, uh, someone who's not easily shaken under pressure. They'll stay calm regardless of how bad the situation is. Someone who can, um, I think, command the respect of their team, so they'll, they'll work with them and listen to them. And, uh, but someone who will also listen too. I think a lot of times uh, when there's an uncertain situation, the trauma bay, I, I lean on my more experienced trauma nurses to kind of like give some advice or, or like what they think is going on. And I take those things very seriously. Some of them have been down there longer than I've been a surgeon and they have a lot of ex practical experience. You know, um, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of them who are more experienced now, they have a path up, they become MPs or whatever, but um, their clinical acumen is really, really good. I mean, they may, maybe they haven't had formal schooling or like formal training in like uh, trauma care, but they've sat down in the trauma bay and seen hundreds, thousands of patients pass through there and seen what's going on with them. And they know very well what's going on, you know, so I learned a lot from them. Um, I think so you have to be a good leader, but also a good listener. I think most good leaders are good listeners. They'll listen to the people who are, who are important and listen to everything and adjust their care based on that. I think you have to um, want to embrace uh, newer technologies and assimilate the science because it's an ever-changing field. And um, I think you have to be comfortable making rapid decisions. It's not everyone who likes doing that or is comfortable doing that because uh, one thing about trauma is it's dynamic. You know, I, I know when we teach it, it's taught like uh, level to level, place to place, but the reality of it is it's like constantly moving. There's, it's a machine that's constantly in motion. And during that, that motion, things cannot work as well or break down and, and it requires a lot of um, detective work and thought and, and um, reevaluation to complete everything. So if people know themselves well, who should think about doing trauma and who should maybe not? Well, I think one of the first things is if, if you don't like blood, don't do trauma. <laughs> it's, it's a, it can be very bloody, you know, but, but I think that's something that you won't know as a student. I think as you do your clerkships, you'll have a better idea of your inclination. Um, if you're better off working by yourself, it's probably not a good field for you. Um, if you don't like the procedural side of things and you prefer... <clears throat> you know, like kind of sitting in the office and evaluating patients and doing an intervention and waiting two or three weeks to figure out what's going on. It's probably not for you either. Um, and um, I think if you're not able to tolerate long hours or, or like long operations or difficult situations, you know, it's not, it pulls you out of the comfort zone, then that's also something that should dissuade you from doing trauma care. This is Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. This podcast was focused on career issues of particular interest to medical students and prospective medical students. We suggest you also listen to the main Medical Murmurs episode featuring the same guests discussing a wider range of issues and sharing stories for a more general audience. Check it out. <laughs>